My name is John Solo, and you're going to hell when you die. No, I'm not talking about H-E double hockey sticks or whatever you may have called it so you didn't get in trouble around your parents and teachers. I'm actually referring to H-E single hockey stick. I know, it's a subtle difference, but it speaks volumes. Because one of those is the Christian idea of the afterlife, where people who've committed horrible sins, like wearing clothes made of two different materials or having pelican for lunch, are lit on fire. The other one is the Norse idea of the afterlife that pretty much everybody goes to and can actually be a party if you're a big enough deal. It's run by a deity of the same name, Hell, and today we're going to learn all about her. Now, if you're a fan of the Marvel movies, you've already been acquainted with Hell to a certain extent. The MCU calls her Hela, and portrays her as the estranged half-sister of Thor and Loki, the bloodthirsty daughter of Odin, the rightful queen of Asgard, and none of this could be more wrong. As great of a villain as Hela is, she has very little in common with the Hell found in the source material, or should I say, Norse material. Thank you, thank you. When you pick her character apart though, it's pretty easy to see where in our Norse resources they took inspiration from. So today I wanna to shed some light on those connections, but more importantly, give you a clear and accurate breakdown of everything we know about the Queen of Hell. So without further ado, let's get started. Chapter one, the arrival of Hell. So like usual, we're getting the information I'm sharing today from the two primary resources we have in Norse mythology. The Prose Edda, written by Icelandic poet Snorri Sturluson around 1200 AD, and the Poetic Edda, a collection of anonymously composed Old Norse poems that were passed on orally for centuries before eventually being collected. Both books make passing mention of either Hel or her kingdom several times, but the best place to start this breakdown is definitely the first part of the Prose Edda, known as the Gilfaginning. This section alone is where we get the majority of what we know about Norse mythology. It gives us details about how the world was made, how it'll be destroyed, and the most important things that happen in between those two points. One of those important things was the arrival of Loki's children, and this is where we meet Hel. That's right, she's actually Loki's daughter, not sister, and to be clear, her name is just Hel, not Hela. She's introduced to us as the youngest of Loki's three children with the giantess Anger Bolda. Her older brothers were Odin's future killer, Fenris Wolf, who we talked about a few episodes ago, and Jormungandr, the world serpent, who goes on to kill Thor during Ragnarok but more on that some other time. See, when the Aesir found out that Loki had been raising his offspring over in Jotunheim, they knew nothing good could come of it, so they gathered up his children and brought them to Asgard, where Odin decided what would be done with the future troublemakers. The slippery little eel that was baby Jormungandr was thrown into the sea, where he grew so large that he encircled the entire world, hence the epithet World Serpent. Fenrir, who was just a puppy at this point, stayed in Asgard for a while, pretty much until he got so big the Aesir were afraid of him. Then they bound him up and abandoned him on an island called Lingvi. When it comes to Hel, Odin personally casts her into the frozen wastes of Niflheim and gives her the job of ruling over the souls of the dead who don't go to Valhalla, specifically those who die from sickness or old age. So that's actually somewhat similar to what happens in the movie. Marvel's Odin banishes her from Asgard because he knows she's going to play a role in its destruction, just like the Odin of the mythos. And that may sound like quite a burden he placed on her, being in charge of almost everyone who dies, but it doesn't appear that Hel had a problem with it. I mean, one half of her was said to be blue, which we know is a color the Norse people associated with bloated, rotting bodies, so she probably was a little more comfortable around the dead anyway. Chapter 2. Helheim 
So let's talk about Hell's Kingdom for a second. What was it like and what exactly did she do there? Well, what we know for sure is that Hell had the hookup. She got to live in a great big mansion with high walls and sturdy gates. That hall was called Eliudner. Her table was called Famine. Her knife, Starvation. Her threshold, the stumbling block. And her bed was called Care or Sickbed. She also had two servants, a man and woman whose names are Gangladi and Ganglot which both means sloth or lazy walker. Hell and her servants took care of the dead by assigning them housing and that's pretty much all we know, actually. I'll be honest with you guys, it's not exactly clear what the Norse people believed about the afterlife, specifically Hell. The place, not the person. I'm gonna call it Hellheim just to distinguish between the two, but you should know that it's just called Hell in the mythos. Makes for some confusing poems where we can't be sure whether the place or person is being referred to, but that's Norse mythology for ya. Anyway, the reason it's so hard to nail down exactly what they believed about it is because half our information comes from Snorri, who not only contradicts himself multiple times throughout the prose Edda, but was also influenced by Christianity and tried to harmonize the two belief systems. For example, in the chapter about Loki's children, we're specifically told that Hell receives those who die of sickness and old age, but an earlier chapter about Odin says that wicked people are sent to Hell and from her go to Nephil Hell. So to me, it sounds like Snorri's going for the best of both worlds here. There's the old and sick who died in ways the Norse people may not have found respectable, and then the wicked, who the Christians believed would be punished after they died, hence going to hell, then down into Nephil hell. An additional layer of confusion can be added when you consider Norse expert John Lindau's theory that the oldest of Norse texts, those written prior to the prose Edda, like the Viking sagas and some poems, clearly refer to hell as just a place, and that the word originally just meant grave and later became personified. This could also explain why the concept of hell as a place, what it's like, where it's located, and how to get there is so unclear. Originally, it just meant grave, but somewhere down the line, it became an entire world of its own, and this world was probably described differently depending on where, when, and who you asked. So in addition to trying to harmonize Norse beliefs with Christianity, Snorri also had to harmonize them with each other. And naturally this would lead to the prose Edda contradicting itself sometimes, which we know it does. All we can really do is take these stories at face value and come up with ways to rationalize the contradictions as we go. With that in mind, if you want to be thrown off even more, there's a poem called Vefthruthnismal in the Poetic Edda, where a wise giant says he's been to the nine realms beneath Helheim where the dead go after Helheim. And what he means is anybody's guess. Like is he referring to the various halls such as Valhalla where the bravest warriors train to fight alongside Odin at Ragnarok? Because there are goddesses who have their own realms for people who die under different circumstances. For example, Freya has a field called Folkvanger where she receives the other half of warriors who die in battle. Ran is a water goddess who rules over the realm of drowned sailors at the bottom of the sea and Gefion is a goddess who oversees those who die as virgins. It's impossible to say whether or not that's what he means, though I'm leaning towards not, but there aren't any other poems or stories that mention the nine worlds the dead go to. I would say one of the few things that's clear about Helheim is that while it may not be glorious like Valhalla, it's not a place where people go to be punished, and you'll see exactly why in the next section. Chapter 3, Baldur's Death. Oh, here I go talking about Baldur dying again. For those new around here or who aren't familiar with the myth, 
The short version goes that there was a beautiful god named Baldur who was loved by everyone and everything except for Loki, who set up Baldur's blind brother Hod to pierce his brother's heart with a dart made of mistletoe, the only thing in the world that could hurt him. As soon as the dart made contact with Baldur's heart, the smile that was always on his face turned to dread and he fell to the ground dead. But the Aesir couldn't accept that their most perfect member was gone. So Ermod the Nimble volunteered to ride Odin's steed Slepnir deep into Helheim and ask its queen if they could have Baldur back. It's here that we're given a bit more information on Helheim and how one gets there. See, it turns out that you're not just transported there immediately after your death. There's a bit of a journey involved and one must travel what's referred to as the road to hell. In True Norse fashion though, we don't get any direct descriptions of this road besides the Ermod rode for nine nights through valleys so deep he saw nothing. Similar to Helheim itself, many just assume it's a cold and perilous journey because it existed within Niflheim, the realm of ice. And I think that low visibility ability adds credence to that. What we know for sure is that as Ermod got closer to Hell's mansion, he had to cross the Gialar Bridge, which is coated in gold and guarded by Mothguther, a female of an unknown race. She calls Ermod out for shaking the bridge more than the five armies of dead men who crossed it the day before, then gives him directions to where he can find Helen Balder. Ermod rides onward, Slepnir takes them both right over the front gate with a mighty leap, and when he enters the House of the Dead, he finds poor Balder actually having a pretty good time. It turns out Hell knew the perfect one was coming, so she made some arrangements, had some mead crafted, prepared some fine food, and gave Baldur the head seat at the table. So since there obviously wasn't much of a need to be urgent, Ermod partied with Baldur all night. And this is what I mean when I say Helheim wasn't necessarily a bad place. I mean, sure, Baldur is one special dead guy, so maybe that's why he was treated so well, but so was his wife, and there were plenty of other guests there too. The interpretation that I like best describes Helheim in neutral terms, saying that because we see dead folks engaging in similar activities as the living, it may mean that death wasn't the end of life to the Norse people, but rather a continuation of it somewhere else. Anyway, the morning after the celebration, Ermod humbly approaches the queen and asks her if Baldur can pretty please go back to Asgard because everyone's real sad about his death. And Hel responds that she'll only let him go if the Aesir get word from everything on the planet that it cries for Baldur. But if they get back even one no, then he'd belong to Helheim forever. It wasn't an easy request, but for a while, the Aesir had hope. They weren't the only ones who appreciated Baldur's beauty, and everyone they talked to said they would cry for him. Everyone except for a giantess named Thok, who many believe was Loki in disguise. Thok said good riddance to Baldur and that he should stay in Helheim where he belongs, and to the overwhelming disappointment of the Aesir, he did. The good news is he was in a somewhat pleasant place and had the company of his wife, who he was madly in love with. So even though the Aesir were crying up in Asgard, there's no reason to believe that Baldur didn't end up just fine. Chapter 4, Ragnarok In the Marvel Cinematic Universe, Ragnarok begins with the death of Odin. But in real Norse myth, the death of Baldur triggers an event called Fimblewinter, which precedes Ragnarok and is described as three seasons of winter in a row, with three other winters preceding those. In other words, it's my worst fucking nightmare. But I'm real excited for the next God of War because we get to experience it firsthand with Kratos and Atreus. By the way, Mr. Barlog and Mr. Williams, if you want to send me a review copy when they go out so I can start making content for it, I'd humbly request that you slide in my DMs. You're the only guys I'd request that from, by the way.
Back to Ragnarok though, we're told in a poem called Voluspa that the warriors who fight for Odin and the dead who fight against him will be woken up by a golden rooster and a soot red rooster respectively. It turns out that red rooster lives in the halls of hell, which makes me wonder how it spends its days because it's clearly not allowed to cockadoodle do until the end of the world. Now, another big difference between myth and movie is that in the myth, she doesn't really have a role besides housing the dead warriors who go on to fight Odin. But in Thor Ragnarok, she's the one leading the charge. She reanimates the fallen warriors of Asgard, fully resurrects her former steed Fenrir, and kills a shit ton of Asgardians. Hell, she almost kills Thor himself until he hits her with the biggest lightning blast in the history of lightning. But let me reiterate, Hela's actual role is nothing like this. She doesn't even get on the boat with the dead warriors and ride to battle. And if I were to theorize about why, I'd say it's because she's busy. It's the end of the goddamn world, yo. Do you know how many new residents she has to prepare for? It's like college-oriented but with less plan B and alcohol consumption. Well, maybe a similar amount of alcohol consumption. With all this being said though, Hela's death in the movie does still have a connection with the mythos because Surtur, the fire giant from Moosebell, is said to fling his fire on our world and destroy it. Very similarly, in the film, Loki resurrects Surtur, who uses his flames to wipe out the city before absolutely obliterating Hela and ultimately destroying Asgard. There is of course a lot more to Ragnarok than just that, so someday I'll do a video breaking it down in its entirety, but when it comes to Hela, that's basically basically everything we know. Though I do wish they gave her a paragraph in the epilogue about dealing with the influx of new residents. Someone could have turned that into an amazingly terrible sitcom. Thank you all for tuning in to the Messed Up Origins podcast. We're posting episodes every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday. So don't forget to sacrifice the five-star and follow buttons to the algorithm gods to make sure they bless your feed with more mythological and folklore content. If you have any thoughts on this episode you'd like to share, like if you really enjoyed it or are dying to correct my pronunciation of something, hit me up under the Messed Up Origins handles on Twitter and Instagram. And to those who are craving more Messed Up Origins, feel free to check out other episodes of the podcast or look up my YouTube channel called John Solo to experience the original episodes complete with visual aids and custom-made artwork. Until next time, Solo fam, my name is John Solo, and don't forget, John shot first. <laughs>